Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 272, and today's guest is Matt Shulman, founder and CEO of PAVE. You might have heard the oxygen versus aspirin analogy for finding product market fit for a company. For Matt, he likes to use a different analogy, and that's the one that he calls the burnt pizza analogy. Most people don't like burnt pizza, but if you're solving a problem that has a very high degree of importance, they will eat the burnt pizza when the product is at an early stage, no matter how bad it tastes. Obviously, as the product evolves, it will hopefully end up being a delicious slice of pizza, but you need to eat to survive. And it all goes back to what we have discussed several times on this podcast, and that is don't build your product in a vacuum where you have cool technology in search of a problem. Instead, talk to your customers or potential customers, figure out the critical challenges they're dealing with, and determine if you can build the product to solve it. And this is information that Matt gets into lots of details around in terms of how he figured out that problem with PAVE. PAVE is on a mission to build the world's best compensation tools and easily accessible market data so companies can plan, communicate, and benchmark in real time. The company recently announced its $100 million Series C round of funding at a $1.6 billion valuation. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep dive into the state of the tech industry and how current market factors are affecting compensation, Matt's experiences while at Penn and how he caught the entrepreneurial bug, plus his experience traveling the world, the background story of PAVE and how he figured out the burnt pizza problem that needed to be solved and how their innovative approach won over customers, all the latest on PAVE in terms of its platform, recent round of funding, and goals ahead for the future how he came up with the name for the rebrand and was able to obtain a single word.com domain and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might wanna add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to infoadventurefizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Matt. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat about compensation. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot. I mean, there's a lot we got to talk about with your company, PAVE, which is in the strike zone of compensation. We're going to talk about the company and what it does and how it helps align people's comp and everything. Uh, but since I do have a self-proclaimed compensation nerd with me on the podcast, I thought this was a perfect opportunity to talk about a topic that is very important to everybody, and that is how you do get paid. So um, a lot has been happening over the past couple of years, especially there's the movement to remote work due to the pandemic. So that affects pay. And now companies are trying to figure out, okay, we now are a remote first company or we're hybrid. Do we pay people the same if they live, if they move during the pandemic to somewhere that's, you know, very different in terms of the cost of living? There's that there's the tech industry, right? There's all these layoffs happening right now, which, um, you know, it's, it's, I think mainly companies that got a little ahead of the skis and have to backpedal a little bit. I don't think it's a macro tech industry issue, but it, it's happening. Um, so these are some things that are going on in the world. There's also, you know, talks of the recession or gas prices, all these things. 
where are we in the state of compensation as it relates to people to the tech industry, since that's going to be the uh, you know majority of the listeners to this? Yeah, you know, I, I get the question pretty much every single day, uh, at least the <laughs> past bet. couple of months, which is this. Uh, inflation, Matt, inflation is, I don't know, 9% plus or minus. Does that mean that tech workers' salaries are also going up by 9%? Or is it more? Or is it less? Uh, what are you seeing? And my answer to that is usually, well, inflation or the, the macro economy is one source of you know input to determining what the market rate is. But there are many other forces as well, such as labor shortages, labor surpluses, specialty of, you know, certain skills. And in tech, you know, I, I'd say there still is a huge shortage of, of really highly skilled technical uh, employees, uh, especially kind of in the, you know, the more engineering disciplines. Um, and so the crazy thing is, despite what we're seeing in terms of layoffs that you mentioned, and the downturn and, you know, you know, multiple quarters of, of GDP depression, etc., um, we are still seeing uh, those technical roles uh, increase in compensation uh, month over month, uh, which is pretty bonkers. And this is mainly on the cash front, like salary that I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, compensation is just kind of one of those interesting markets where it, it only kind of goes in one direction. Um, it never really goes down, right? So a company increases its uh, salary bands, you know, from whatever, 90K to 100K, well, if the economy tanks, they're not going to say, okay, uh, employees at our company, we're going back to 90K. We're going you know, back in time. It Let's destroy our culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's the interesting thing about cash. Equity compensation, and you mentioned tech, equity compensation is a huge part of, of tech uh, employees' compensation, is a whole nother beast with even more complexity. And the most confusing part, if I had to distill it into one thing, is that at public tech companies... Employees can log in to Yahoo Finance or whatever and see the, the 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 current ticker price, and then multiply that by the number of shares, and they know their exact value of their holdings, and it's liquid. However, at a private company, there is not a real time notion of price or like what is the value of this company. Well, maybe we raised around at a billion valuation last year. Oh, well, now I see public uh, you know tech stock prices tanking 50, 60, 70 percent. Well, what does that mean for the value of my equity? It's opaque. It's an offline marketplace. And it is so confusing to think about it from the employee perspective, because there is not clarity in terms of the market value. And from the employer perspective, it's all over the board in terms of, well, do we try to true it up? Do we keep it as is? Do we redo our 49A? Um, and I've been talking with lots of employers and there is no prevailing, like, you know, this is the way you do it. Everybody is kind of looking at each other and it's, it's a mess right now. So yeah, compensation is messy, but for folks with highly skilled skill sets, as we talked about, they're highly specialized skill sets. Um, we are seeing their salaries still go up, even despite the fact that we're in a pretty severe market downturn. Yeah, and same. So Venture Fizz, we're you know an employment branding and recruiting website focused on the tech industry. And yeah, there's been a dip in the number of jobs, but not a catastrophic dip. It's been kind of like a, you know, a, a, a dent, but not a major crumbling of jobs on our site. It's still, a, and I, I always, you know, as a former recruiter, I always, always told people in good times and bad, the most highly sought after talent is going to land just fine. Uh, so make sure you're always focused on keeping yourself marketable, whatever job you're at, whether it's a big company, small company, super early stage startup, what are the skills that you're building to keep yourself marketable, you know, two to five years down the road type of thing. So uh, that's good to hear. Thanks for the insight. Let's rewind the clock. Uh, so where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so I grew up uh, on the East Coast, currently in San Francisco, but grew up outside of Philadelphia. Um, 
And yeah, I, I loved being outside, loved uh, being on the Appalachian Trail. It's kind of just a, a kid always looking for an excuse to get out of the house. Um, grew up in the suburbs of Philly, like I mentioned. And uh, I would say, you know, back in, in middle school, high school, math was my favorite subject. But I, I just love talking with people. Um, I always wanted to be an astronaut. I think I still want to be an astronaut. That's my life goal. Go to <laughs> the moon, go to Mars and stuff. I tell that people, they they think I'm joking, but I'm serious. Um but eventually it's, it's happening citizen. I, I know. Like, yeah. Exploration. I mean, space. It's happening. I think my life goal is just to have many adventures of, of many different chapters and flavors. Uh, obviously I'm in, in a pretty intense uh, chapter or adventure right now. Um, and I'm having a blast. Uh, but I think there will be many chapters in life and I'm excited to pursue all of them. Some of them may be outside of, uh, you know, the bounds of earth, but, uh, I, I remember having that dream when I was a kid, I was always looking at astronauts in space and everything, but, Eventually, I got to college, uh, so I went to Penn in, in Philadelphia, and um, yeah, I studied started studying computer science, and uh, I think I, I fell in love with the the fact that with computer science, you know, you can just pull one all nighter or spend one week working really hard and make some app or some website or some service that your friends can use, that your 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 family can use. You can put on the app store, you can you know set up some Facebook ads or something, and um, yeah, I thought that was just really really satisfying. So I fell in love in college with the whole kind of hackathon culture. Penn had this thing called Penn Apps, um, and I I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Everybody just getting in a room, and instead of saying, hey, it's going to take a year to build this new app, we'd say, well, let's do it in 24 hours. What do you say? Let's see what we can get done. So I remember being obsessed with that. Um, and I remember also in college, um, you know, I grew up kind of like middle class on the East Coast. So um I, I didn't have extreme exposure to like extreme wealth or like, you know, financial advisors or some of these things that a lot of people have access to. And then I get to college and there's a wide array of people. And I remember having all these fights about index funds and crypto was just starting to come into the existence in the world, but it was like the very nascent days um, and all these different strategies. And I, I just found it crazy that the average American does not understand uh, how to save for retirement, does not get taught in school the basics of a 401k and IRA tax savings, things like that. And I just thought it was one of like the biggest problems. And I actually was jealous of probably friends from wealthier backgrounds that had been taught all this stuff by family members, by brothers, by brother-in-law, sister-in-laws, whatever. Uh, so I think that was kind of this initial spark of two things. The first being just an obsession with building things, like I mentioned in the hackathons. And the second being just personal finance. I, I thought it was just one of the biggest problems that is mostly unaddressed. And sure, I've downloaded Mint and all these other, you know, personal financial management apps, but none of them really have an opinionated stance on telling me like what to do or how to make sense of my personal finances. So yeah, I think that was uh, the second thing that I became obsessed with personal finance. So um, yeah, you can see eventually how that leads into compensation, but I, that, that's how I would summarize my college years, I would say. Yeah. And I mean, you could tell just from your LinkedIn profile, you had the entrepreneurial bug. You know, you were involved in different software companies, an early stage one that, it, it, you know, your little headlines like best experience while in school, I learned sales or something. That's another skill set that I don't understand why isn't taught in universities or something you know, like it's like sales is so important and it's good for everyone to know how to sell. So, um, so after school, what'd you do after? So, um, as I mentioned earlier in the call, uh, I love adventures. Uh, some of those are professional adventures. I also have avid, you know, mountaineering ambitions and backcountry skiing and just, I wanted to see the world. I remember in high school, I had told all my friends, Hey, I'm going to take a gap year after high school before college. Nobody believed me. They were right. I didn't take one. And I felt a little bit guilty, but after college, I said, you know what? I don't care what happens. I'm taking a gap year. I'm going to see the world. That's um, awesome. So 
it's actually pretty crazy. I remember because right before my senior year, I got in a really bad uh, bike crash out in California. I was doing an internship, got hit by a car, like fractured uh, many vertebrae, cut open my head. Um, it was really bad. And for the first half of senior year, I was in this like body brace. Um, so it was like really close to becoming paralyzing. So I think that's what put me over the edge and said, okay, I don't know what's going to happen in life, but next year, assuming I recover, I am traveling. I don't care what happens. So uh, I graduated and that night flew to Asia. And then before you know it, I, I had been traveling for, I don't know, 14 or 15 months, just kind of on a shoestring budget. Uh, and the way I funded it was, I mean, I studied computer science and, and business, but you know, I was an aspiring entrepreneur and, and software engineer. So um, I just started making a bunch of random mobile apps and website apps too for friends of uh, family members and you know fathers of friends and and random gigs here and there. And so for the better part of a year, I did a ton of mountaineering. I lived in a van in New Zealand for a few months. Uh, was in India for a while, South America. And I would just find coffee shops and code for, you know, eight hours here, two hours there. Uh, occasionally, I would get obsessed. Uh, in fact, one of those stints was um, in Bolivia. I spent like six months and I basically didn't leave my Airbnb in La Paz. And it was for this app called Dollar Z, which was this personal financial literacy app. So I was still obsessed with that problem space. I had toyed at it, uh, you know, from a couple of different angles. I'd also spent like a month in Ghana with a friend from high school. Uh, and we'd made like a political literacy app. I was just kind of having a blast. I was climbing mountains living in a car, um, you know, eating on like $10 a day and coding. And it was so much fun. And I almost wanted to keep going forever. But eventually I said, you know what? Uh, I should probably come back to California and, um, you know, see Silicon Valley, which I'd always dreamt of. So after about, I don't know, 14 or 15 months of, of climbing and mountaineering and coding, uh, came to California. So that was the, the next major chapter, I'd say. That's amazing. That's such a great time frame of your life that you can just always just remember what it was like doing that for over a year. So then you ended up working at Facebook. So what'd you work on there? And what did you learn while working at Facebook? So I joined Facebook. And uh, as you know, Facebook's quite a large company. Uh, I had interned there. And even between, I think it's summer of 2015 when I interned there, and then uh, summer of 2017 when I had finished my travels and, and joined, the company had like two or three X its employee base. And it just felt very large. So my motivation was, hey, is, is there a way to try to find an earlier stage team within the company or some zero to one project? And um, at the time, Zuckerberg had sort of made some you know, proposal or, or project or plan, uh, I think, to compete mainly with Snapchat and had you know, tried to find a way to say, hey, is there a way to provide some sort of safe messaging experience for, for kids? Um, and so it's kind of just a thesis at the time. And... The way it works at Facebook is they have this thing called bootcamp where you talk with many different teams and then find the one that you want to work at. And then it's kind of this mutual matching process. And the instant I found this team, it was like the only zero to one style team in the company. And um, I was like, heck yeah, this sounds amazing. So I joined it before it was like a launched app or really kind of a, a solidified vision. But eventually it evolved into this team called Messenger Kids, where we built this uh, you know protected and safe messaging experience. Uh, I, I was on the Android team. I think it was like the fourth Android engineer and it was great. I mean, look, uh, I had just spent a year of, of coding kind of by myself, which means that I did a lot of really bad coding and engineering practices just to get the job done quickly. And then I enter Silicon Valley and there's all these senior engineers and I am so grateful for everything they did, but man, it was stressful to, to put up a code review and then have it torn apart by all these senior <laughs> staff engineers that know what they're doing. And 
it was very humbling because I realized I had no idea what I was doing. But yeah, those were my two years at uh, Facebook, essentially kind of on the Messenger Kids team. All right. So based on your experience at, at Penn, it seemed very obvious that, hey, probably going to go off and start your own company someday, right? Was that always kind of the the goal? Yeah, um, I think I always just had that bug in me. Um I, I don't know exactly how or when it started. I mean, I think I was always like making lemonade stands as a kid and stuff. So I think I always had that like entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I also had like a, a snow shoveling business. Uh, whenever it snowed in Philly, I would just put up flyers and then, you know, make 50 bucks for every neighbor's driveway. So I think I always like had that bug in me. And then I think at Penn, it became a lot stronger because I, I met a lot of like really cool people who had been entrepreneurs and heard stories. And um, yeah, again, I just fell in love. I remember during those days of, I think it was like my junior year, um, of college, uh, I, <laughs> I was living in West Philly and I was working on the scheduling app and I would have friends come over. I kid you not at like 3am, I would go to bed at like 10, wake up at three. My friends would come over we would code between 3am and 8am. And then we would walk to class just for fun. We weren't paid. <laughs> it was just awesome. like fun. So That's yeah, awesome. that was a, like, I was obsessed with that energy. So yeah, I, I would say that there were all these different things and yeah, I definitely wanted to start something. And then the year of traveling, I just loved the zero to one process of like yeah. bringing something into existence on earth. So hundred um, percent. Yeah. It, it just is a, a dream that strengthened over time. I would say. All right. So we're going to talk about PAVE and what you guys do, but how did, how did you get that started? Like what, how did the idea to come to fruition? How'd you do the market research, figure out that pain point? So I told you briefly about that dollars ed experience when I was kind of in La Paz for like five or six weeks, just coding. It, that was um, my first official stab, I would say, at something in the world of uh, personal financial health. Um, it was supposed to be this uh, education module that teaches you about taxes and 401ks and IRAs and compounding interest, the basic fundamentals. Um, it didn't really take off. And eventually, um, I, I loved the team I was working with, but decided to come to California. I felt a little bit trapped by the end of Facebook, candidly, because I definitely like it was a big company. I loved it, but amazing people definitely wanted something earlier. And one of my friends, uh, my good buddies at the time, uh, had suggested, hey, well, why don't we work on something in this world of, of personal financial health? And I said, heck, yeah, let's do it. So without thinking twice, we quit together. Uh, he was also at Facebook at the time. Um, and I owe so much to him because he really is the one I would say that pushed me over the edge. So I believe it was June of uh, 2019. So just over three years ago, we quit. And our dream at the time was more or less to build a, a better version of the app Mint. I'm not sure if you've used Mint, but well, you know, you think all your accounts. Ironically, ironically, Aaron Patzer was on our podcast literally like weeks ago. <laughs> so, Amazing. Like he's, awesome. he's working on his new startup Vital, but he talked the whole about Mint, that whole story, which was a great success story back in that era. I mean, it was, it was a great huge exit from then at that point in time. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's such a valuable app. Um, we, I was obsessed with it and I just wanted to like jam on it and make something a little bit like more automated or like, you know, instead of just syncing your accounts, you could set up rules or logic or, you know, Hey, every paycheck put, you know, 10% here, 20% there, move it, move it. If the IRA is filled, move it there, etc. I just wanted like to be able to put your life on autopilot. And so spent like three or four months working on this. Um, and so we get to like October ish of 2019 and, uh, my friend and I, we say, okay, now it's time to sell this thing. And we went to market and we tried to sell it kind of in a B2B context. So we said to companies, Hey, we have this new employee benefit. It's going to take care of your employees, financial health. Um, why don't you pay us whatever $30,000 for a contract and we'll help you roll it out to every employee and they'll love you. They'll be retained for the long haul, et cetera. Um, however, Nobody really paid up to, to buy it. Um, 
it, it was, uh, I, I use this term a lot. Uh, I call it a solution in search of a problem. And if you think about it, we had spent three or four months building a solution. And then we tried to find the buyer, tried to find the problem. And I think that was the, the fundamental issue with that particular chapter, um, solution in search of a problem. I abbreviated as CISPA, solution in search of a problem. Um, and so that, that was like extremely disheartening to have put your like blood, sweat and tears into some app and then, you know, try to find a buyer and just like you're, you're in these like demos and they're on their phone or they're like leaving earlier. Um, you know, just like, <laughs> it's very disheartening. It, they, they don't mean to disrespect you, but that's your baby. And, and they're just like neglecting it. And that is so stressful. Um, so this is like fall of 2019. Um, at that point, we went through a, a co-founder breakup. Um, still very good friends with with the guy, Mitch. Uh, think the world of him. He's doing his own startup. He went more in the 401k direction. Uh, they seem to be doing extremely well. Uh, for me, I went more in the stock option direction. So what happened was during one of these demos, I remember it very distinctly. Um, it was with a, a customer, Chime. Um, Chime today is much bigger, but at the time they had about, I don't know, 180 employees or something like that. And I remember it was like the state of flow where they basically said, Matt, you know, the real problem for us is around stock options. It's a subset. It's a narrow subset of this discipline of personal financial health that you're talking about. Specifically, our employees and candidates, they don't understand their stock options. Recruiters don't know how to communicate the stock options. These employees or candidates, maybe they join, they become employees. They're confused about early exercising and AMT tax obligation and the preferred versus the strike price and when the next round is happening and the dead zone. It's just a mess. And it's the blind leading the blind and it sucks. Um, and I said, you know, what? That, that's pretty interesting because um, all my friends also come to me and they also complain about their stock options uh, because I live in San Francisco. My friends work at startups. Nobody understands stock options. You know what? You're so right. Um, <laughs> it's just the most confusing instrument. And it's a shame because it's supposed to have been that vehicle, that magical vehicle that has fueled Silicon Valley. And everybody knows the story of your neighbor that got the Uber stock options and now is a multimillionaire with the house in Tahoe, et cetera. But nobody actually understands the underlying fundamentals. So I said, that's pretty interesting. And a similar thing happened in a couple of additional demos where you know the, the customers articulated a strong interest uh, for some uh, tool or some solution or offering that would help. Uh, provide clarity around stock option compensation. Um, and it's like, you know, when you hear the, the same thing happening two or three times over, there might be something there. It, it seems pretty interesting. Um, so at this point in time, it's like November of 2019. Um, and in my life, I, I mean, in college, I had studied computer science and also business, but I had, I had never done any sales like you were mentioning earlier or business development or anything like that. So um, I was, I was ready for a new experience. I was out on my own in the wild now because I'd gone through the co-founder breakup and I said, okay, um, let me read every blog post I can find about sales. Let me read a book, uh, a couple books about sales. Uh, my favorite book was called the challenger sales method. So I read all these books, read all these blog posts and I'm like, all right, I'm going to become a salesman. So what, what do I need to do? <laughs> and so the, the advice I had received from a couple different, uh, advisors or blog posts or whatever, uh, is just set up a, an email campaign and, and just email the market. And so I emailed, it was like 200 uh, executives. I paid, at the time I was living on a crazy frugal budget, but I kind of had liked that because I had been traveling for a year and, you know, I knew the $10 a day kind of thing. So I'm like, you know, mainly on Soylent and Huel and just like totally, totally, I'm, I was, I think I lost a lot of weight because I wasn't eating that much, um, but I was having the time of my life. And I paid for, it was like LinkedIn Sales Navigator plus HubSpot plus Seamless AI. And it was this trifecta of these three sales tools where I could find the customers I wanted to talk to, get the leads, like get their emails, and then put them through this uh, email drip campaign in HubSpot. 
So I emailed 200. It was like a random Thursday. I remember like early November or something like that. I emailed 200 executives in the Bay Area. It was 100 like CFOs or VPs of finance and 100 like CHROs or, or chief people officers. And I basically said, hey, my name is Matt. Um, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just an engineer. However, I've, I've observed from a lot of companies in tech that stock options are extremely confusing and stressful. Nobody understands them. Um, let alone trying to figure out how many to give or getting data about what the right market rate is to pay people. It's just kind of broken. And look, I'm an engineer. Um, I'm looking for work. Maybe I can help you. If you're interested, here's my Calendly link. I would love to chat and, and learn more and, and see if there's a way to work together. And so I sent this email out to 200 people. And uh, I think I was like surfing up at Dillon Beach or something. I remember waking up. All my friends were still asleep. I woke up at like 6 a.m. because I just was like so full of life and had so much adrenaline. And it was like, like, I think it was like 45 Calendly notifications. <laughs> and some of these are big shot people. I think it was like the, the CFO of Discord, the CFO of Mozilla. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah, keep in mind, I've just been like an IC engineer for two years. So to see these C-level people <laughs> at these companies that I know, I was just like through the roof. It was like unbelievable. And it ended up being the case. I think it was like 58 or 59 out of the 200 responded in book time, which is like a 30% response rate. So you're, you're, I think this is a point where you got to pause where it's like, you don't need to be a good salesperson if you're addressing a pain point that actually matters to people, right? Like th that's proof right there that you are onto something that people really cared about, that they would likely pay money to buy what you're going to end up doing. 100%. Uh, I think there's two themes. One is don't do the CISPA route, the solution in search of a problem. Focus on the pain point, like you're saying. Start with the pain point. Don't build until the pain point is solidified and there's a willingness to pay. So that's lesson one. Um, and then lesson two is kind of this analogy of uh, what I call the burnt pizza, which we'll get to in a little bit. But uh, there's two ways to look at a burnt pizza in the sort of like uh, mindset of a, an early stage product. One is that when you're selling a product, if you're selling a burnt pizza, people don't like burnt pizza. They're not going to eat the burnt pizza. You need to make that pizza gourmet until you know if it has PMF or if it doesn't have PMF, product market fit, that is. However, the way I view the analogy of the burnt pizza is that you want to find a pain point that is so visceral that even if that pizza is burnt and disgusting and has no vegetables on it and like is absolutely charred and might give you like, you know, sickness from eating it, um, customers are still lining up and happily eating that pizza and paying money to eat that pizza, even if it's the most disgusting thing in the world. Yeah, because if, if you don't eat, you don't survive. So you got to eat something. So That's right. I'll eat burnt pizza if I have no food. So this 100%. is a solution for the problem that I've been dying to find and there's no other alternatives. I'll work with you to figure it out and go through the bumps and bruises of you know, product development. Without a doubt, 100% could not agree more. And that was the lesson I learned. Start, start so with cool. the problem and then just make it a burnt pizza. And, and if people are willing to pay for the burnt pizza, there might be product market fit. I think it's important to explain what you do real quick because uh, there's more to the story of the early days, but uh, just for context. So what is PAVE? So PAVE is a compensation platform. We help companies with all the different aspects of, of paying their employees fairly. So part of that is getting the data to figure out what is the market rate for, like we were talking about earlier, an engineer in San Francisco, let's say. The second thing is around planning. How do you take all the different inputs, right? The market data, the different bands that you set up for your employees, all the different performance ratings and performance reviews for managers, discretionary budgets for cash, for equity. How do you how do you take all this information and then put it in a controlled uh, portal or platform where every single manager and budgeter can go in 
and pay their people fairly. And then you have some guardrails to ensure that there are no inequities where one department is getting compensated higher than the other unfairly, right? So that's the second one, planning. And then the third is all around communication. And that's where the business really started. How do you communicate transparently to every single candidate and every employee the same story with the same information so that everybody is on equal footing? And those are the three pillars that we have today. It's about benchmarking against the market, planning, and then communicating compensation to every single candidate and every single employee. So yeah, that's compensation. That's safe. And, and to kind of go through the founding story again, I think like, is it fair to say that you're like you, you had an interest in personal finance and built a product and then obviously that didn't work out and you've discovered this pain point, but is it safe to say that you were maybe a little naive <laughs> because what you asked for when you were interviewing for Y Combinator, they kept probing you on the same question where they were in disbelief that people were sharing their compensation information, right? Is that kind of like, if you were in the industry, you'd be like, no way anyone's ever gonna, gonna share that information or something to that effect, right? Yeah, so you're alluding to a really interesting point, which is the underlying thesis of the company, which is that we are online. The, the world of compensation in, in a world before PAVE was offline. It was spreadsheet driven. It was consulting driven. It was, hey, let's do some sort of survey. It will take a year and then we'll give you the, the 2021 report kind of survey process. And that is broken. It's inherently, you're looking back in time. It's offline. It's, it's, it's stale. It, it just sucks. <laughs> and our thesis was, hey, all of this information about HR data, compensation information exists in systems of record. And we just need to integrate with them and pull all of that information into one database, essentially. And so March of 2020, uh, I eventually was able to, to convince a few, it was three customers to all sign up uh, for that initial sort of value prop around communication. And so they gave me the API keys to their HR systems, like their Bamboo HR, their Gusto, their Rippling, their Carta, their Shareworks, et cetera. And um, so suddenly we had this real-time handshake with these three systems of record. And to your point, I interviewed with Y Combinator, I think it was April-ish, so about a month after I got those initial integrations. And, you know, these YC interviews, it was already weird because it was COVID had just started, like literally just started. And so it was the first time ever that they had done the YC interviews over Zoom instead of in real life. So there was an interesting dynamic there. And also these YC interviews, they're, I mean, they're doing so many interviews and the way their thesis is that they can get a good read on an entrepreneur in the business in just 15 minutes. They don't need like an hour of diligence and TAM estimates, et cetera. So it's this intense 15 minute interview. I come in prepared with like, you know, a hundred different questions and answers and had to had practice like a hundred million times with a hundred different founders and advisors, et cetera. And, the, and during the interview, I thought I bombed it because the only thing they asked me about, like you said, was like, wait, 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 so, so, sorry. Like, wh what do you mean to tell me that you have these API keys? Like, are, are these API keys real? Are they for just one employee? Um, and I'm like, no, uh, three companies. So roughly 500 employees each, they integrated their systems. And um, now I have this real-time handshake with all of the compensation data at that company. They're like, they just didn't believe it. They were in a state of utter disbelief. And it was kind of like, you don't, you, I'm sure it was, it wasn't a common practice. It's like every, every disruption of an industry, there's gotta be someone that comes in with a new set, new lens, new set of eyes, just to say, why is it being done that way? Why wouldn't they do it this way? hundred percent. Yeah. Um, we found a, an initial beachhead product or, or value prop that was a visceral enough of a pain point to that burnt pizza analogy that customers were willing to integrate their systems because they had such a desire to solve that problem that they were willing to go ahead and do that. And I think 
you know, so, so you recently announced your um, Series C, so $100 million raised in June was an, at least the announcement. And I think in your write-up where you talked about the raise, it goes back to the burnt pizza where you had a, for 400 companies, you had a negative NPS score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just proves you were solving a pain point where it was like, you know, obviously the NPS store score is like the other side of the spectrum now, but you were solving a pain point, but they were still like, this is, you know, feeding my hunger. Yeah. Um, that, that was the really powerful thing for us, I think, is that um, you're, you're talking about our benchmarking product, which is like, it only works if you have thousands of companies in it. Uh, otherwise, you don't have a, you know sufficient coverage of market data. And when we launched it originally in, in Q1 of 2021, so I don't know, 15 or 16 months ago, um, we just didn't have that critical coverage of data. So there were so many holes in the data set. I call it the Swiss cheese problem where it's like, yeah, it's like a piece of Swiss cheese. And if you stretch it, the holes get really big and it's pretty obvious. So that's why we had a negative NPS, among other issues, but that was the core kind of structural one. And so it was just a long slog to get it to a state where it actually had a critical coverage of data and was providing value. But the powerful thing in our space is that all of our customers, despite the fact that we didn't have a great solution at the time, had a strong distaste for the legacy players. I won't mention them, but the ones that do this old school kind of survey process, they all want these legacy players to be disrupted. So it's almost as if they were cheering for us. Even though we didn't have a great product at the time, even though we were selling a burnt pizza, they believed in the vision of what we were doing because they wanted it to exist in the world. So that was a really powerful thing that I think allowed us to get through that period of time where, you know, the product, it wasn't good. <laughs> and that was powerful. And it all goes back to what I said originally. It's less about the solution. It's more about the problem. If you have a just systemic or visceral problem that inflicts pain for customers across the industry, they will cheer for any new entrant into the market that is trying to build a better solution. They genuinely want you to win. And I would imagine all this packaged up a really nice story for when you did go out to raise capital because you've raised, I believe every year, right? Since 2020, you did your A round and well, you did your seed in March of 2020. Your a, and this is crunch base information. Your A round in uh, December 2020, led by Andreessen Horowitz, and then August 21, your um, 46 million from Y Combinator continuity fund, and then you just announced your 100 million dollar Series C. So you've been on this aggressive pace of raising a lot of capital to scale a company that obviously the investors are like, wait, yeah, this is a problem that is. I mean, market size, right? It's every single company deals with compensation. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're dealing with a subset, but it is something that if you nail this product market fit, it's something that just goes across every single industry. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I guess a couple of interesting tidbits in there. Yeah. I mean, part, part of our uh, strategy has been to go as fast as humanly possible. Uh, and part of that is raising a lot of money to grow the team and, and just accelerate. And the reason is because um, we view the data asset, this market data portal that we're building, we call it benchmarking. We view it as something that everybody has their eyes on. And it's kind of a space race for which entity or which player is going to get it first. But there will be a player that gets it and they will be the undisputed kind of winner. Um, upmarket, kind of on an incumbent standpoint, Radford is currently like the, the main winner. They're one of the offline players. Downmarket, there's Option Impact, which we recently acquired. So that was a huge event for the company. Um, so that that is one of the main reasons why we've said, you know what, we're going to go so fast and mistakes will be made at times. And, you know, sometimes we'll have a negative NPS, like you said, but it's all in pursuit of accelerating the path to accumulating all of that data as fast as humanly possible. Um, and that's a stressful path. It's also a very fun path. 
And that's why we've raised, you know, essentially four rounds of financing in like two years. The one that you didn't mention was uh, the, the scariest one, actually, which was in like March of 2020. Um, we had just signed those three customers. And I think we had like, I don't know, 46 or 47K of, of ARR at the time from those three deals. So that was good. And that was just enough momentum to raise the initial, uh, I guess, pre-seed or seed round. However, it was the worst time in history, I would say, to raise venture capital money, even worse than today, I would say. Um, if you remember, like the stock market absolutely crashed in March of 2020, and every VC totally froze because they were just trying to get some clarity in terms of how things were going to settle out. Now, funnily enough, three or four months later, we were back in a bull market. But um, at the time in March of 2020, I was frightened beyond belief. But we had those three paying customers. So at least we had that. So that, that was the other round as well. Um, but yeah, we, we've raised a, a lot of money because we just want to accelerate. And it's the right thing for the industry. Because an unfortunate outcome, in my opinion, would be one where it's bifurcated and nobody knows what's the right source of truth for market data. And well, maybe I go here, then I go there, then there's conflicting information. And you know, half the data set is in one uh, ecosystem, half the data sets in another. Um, that would just be a really bad customer experience. So we really just want to build like the canonical source of truth for market data. Um, and to your other point around, um, you know, this being a problem for every employer, I, I fully, fully believe that because, you know, today we're focused mainly on, on technology companies in the United States. But if you look around the world, every single company has to deal with compensation. In fact, it's not just companies. It's every single member of the global workforce. There's about 4 billion of them. Every single one gets paid and somebody has to figure out how to pay them and they have to figure out if it's a fair rate. And they've had some awkward experience negotiating with their boss or giving a weird, awkward, you know, offer letter to one of their reports and not knowing if it's the right rate. It's just one of the most universal problems uh, for the entire economy. And the even crazier bit is that I think it's about 50% of global GDP just goes to wages, just goes to paying people. So you could argue that it's the intersection of something that is universal for every member of the global workforce. And it's also simply put the most expensive thing in the world. And that's why the compensation TAM is something that's massive and can be a multi-trillion dollar company if we play our cards right. So, so what, like, what are, like, if you flip the other side of the equation, so if you're a job seeker and you're trying to figure out your worth, like what, what do consumers have access to? I mean, there are websites out there that have their benchmarks, but like, what is the source of truth for that side? If you're trying to negotiate a salary of what you feel you're worth? There's not a good one today, and we fully intend and plan to solve that. We want to build what we call the consumer graph so that employees can understand if they're getting paid what they deserve. Now, we think the stronger way to fulfilling that vision is to start with the B2B model that we have today. However, we fully, fully intend eventually to have an offering for consumers where they can understand, hey, what am I getting paid? What are the, the mechanics of it? What are the specifics? What's my history? And what does the future look like? What could I get paid if I you know, went back to market and, and looked for another job or to the points from earlier in this call, if I you know, focused on a few different specialized skill sets, maybe I learned how to code, what could that enable me in the, the labor economy uh, from like a bargaining standpoint? So we fully believe that that will make the ecosystem better for all constituents, not for just for employers, not just for employees. Um, marketplaces are better when there's uh, perfect information on both sides. I'm not saying that everyone should know everyone's comp. I think that's a bit crazy and could cause a lot of chaos in the workplace. But I do think that everybody is entitled to knowing that they can earn what they deserve. Because part of it is discretionary based on performance. You know, it's not just purely data. It's like, okay, who's the top performer? And they write code faster. It's higher quality. They're, you know, dependable. They, you know, go the extra mile. Like those things are obviously not data points. They could always, but I think having that benchmarks of, 
data. And I would always, when I was recruiting, I always tell people these different salary surveys, take them with a grain of salt, just like you do with Glassdoor. Take it yeah. with a grain of salt. It's not the truth. I mean, there's parts that are probably true, but it's not always the end all be all of the culture of the company. So. 100%. I mean, and the issue with Glassdoor, you mentioned, and, and some of these other kind of uh, consumer facing data sets today um, is that there's this huge survey bias because they're essentially these crowdsourced uh, engines where, you know, in, random employees will upload how much they get paid to Glassdoor or AngelList or, you know, yada, yada. And there's a selection bias for who's uploading that information. There's also no way to validate that that information is correct. It also is stale the second after they upload it. And so if you're looking at Glassdoor or AngelList as a job seeker, um, you're not looking at really good information. And that's a shame because that can cause really emotional kind of reactions. You know, the, the story I'll have in that note is uh, Facebook had an interesting culture when I was there. Um, maybe I was always obsessed with compensation before I even knew it, but they had this uh, internal group called, I uh, forget exactly what, but people would upload how much they made in terms of their compensation. And they would say, hey, I just got promoted from whatever, E4 to E5, and here's my new salary, here's my new RSU package. And I, would, I, I remember I would be coding late at night and I would look at that channel and I would be depressed because the only people uploading their information were those that got the highest ratings, like, you know, greatly exceeds expectations or discretionary equity or whatever. And I was like, oh man, I thought I was doing well. And then I see this group and yeah, you only hear the vocal minority of the people that are, you know, at the far end of the curve. So long story short, that's the issue with these like crowdsourced uh, methods of collecting data. You have to have hundred percent access to the information of the company. And going back to my original point uh, around why the B2B model is superior, it's because of exactly that. You need to bring the whole world of uh, you know conversation online. You can't just go for bits and pockets here and there. Bit you know tag a little, a few people from Facebook, a few people from Google. That doesn't work because you don't get a comprehensive understanding of the market. So that's why we're starting with B two B. But our vision, a hundred percent, is to open this up to every single member of the global workforce. What's the plan in terms of hiring? Um, you already mentioned that hey, we've raised capital so that we can grow the team. So what's what's your plan there, and what's what's the culture like working there? Yeah. Um, so two, two great questions uh, on the note of hiring. Um, it's been a pretty crazy run. Uh, like I mentioned uh, in March of 2020, that's sort of where I would say the business really got started uh, right at the beginning of COVID. And at the time it was just me. Um, I was selling, I was coding, I was not really sleeping. I was having the time of my life. Um, as soon as we raised that initial money, we were able to hire an amazing early team of about four or five folks. Um, interestingly enough, two of them were in England. Uh, and then three of them were here in San Francisco. Uh, we then raised the Series A and, you know, fast forward to today, we have about, I think it's about 165 employees and most of them are in San Francisco. Uh, we also have an office in New York now, about 20 folks in New York, and then about six engineers in England that kind of emerged or evolved from that initial group of two. Um, in terms of team growth, I'd say a lot of it comes down to R&D, uh, you know, engineering, product design, et cetera. Um, we get so much leverage from being able to build the systems to pull all this information online and integrate with you know all these different HR systems and make sense of the data. We have a lot of machine learning running on the back end to, to process this information and classify it into the right job families, the right job levels, et cetera. It is non-trivial. And the interesting thing is there's no shortage of things we could build. Um, it's one of those problem spaces where the deeper we get in, the more complex it gets, which is great. Uh, it's also stressful because I feel like we're only touching the tip of the iceberg today. We're just at the surface level. And we're not yet at that point where we have like intelligence. We have this data set, we have these tools, but the two don't sing and dance together. So we really want to, you know, bring that intelligence into the platform so that it's like the most intelligent 
compensation platform that can predict when your employees are going to churn and arm you with the best compensation philosophies that are fair and going to have the best long run outcomes. So a lot of that is contingent upon growing the the engineering and, and the product and the design team. So um, of course, we have to hire other job functions, sales, et cetera. Um, but yeah, that, that would be sort of a little bit of candor around the hiring. Um, in terms of the culture, um, we have taken a pretty controversial stance on, on one key dimension that's worth noting. And that is that despite having been a, a company that was founded during the middle of knock on wood, the worst global pandemic we will have in our lifetimes, uh, we kept and true to this vision of having an office and having this vibrant in-person culture. And if you read the news, the vast majority of, of the headlines that you'll see are all about remote work and you know how the office is dead, especially in San Francisco. Um, and I fully understand and appreciate remote work. In fact, we talked earlier in this call how I spent like 14 or 15 months literally coding while I was in like the Himalayas or whatever. Um, so I get it. I appreciate it. However, my philosophy, my cultural thesis for the best way to build an early stage company is to make it in person so that people can be there. They can feel the magic. They can look at the whiteboard. You can have an SDR or a sales rep, you know, bumping shoulders with a, an engineer when they're filling up at coffee in the morning and suddenly it will spark some creative joy or some magical, you know, uh, serendipitous moment where they say, let's go walk around the park and then it's a new product idea before you know it, right? That is tough to replicate over Zoom. It's not impossible, but it's a lot harder. So our thesis as a company has been all sort of on, or at least cultural thesis has all been built on top of this foundation of the in-person culture, the in-person energy. Um, and then there's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of energy, a lot of high ambition. And it's kind of this positive feedback loop that all is built on that, you know, office energy. Um, and candidly, a lot of people thought we were crazy when I was talking about this. Um, it's kind of a little bit less so now, but, you know, at first it would almost be like, I have to like grace the candidate. Uh, okay. Are you sitting down? I have something to tell you. We're in person. You Don't freak out. Come. Let me tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take a chill pill. And uh, at first it was kind of interesting. Um, but what I've come to realize is that, you know, we have this differentiated value prop in the market. And so when we talk with candidates, some of them will, you know, immediately filter out at the top of the funnel and they'll say, hey, you know, I, I moved to Jackson, Wyoming. I, I no longer have any interest in working at uh, an in-person company. And we say, great. I get it. No problem. We're probably not the fit for you. We disqualify them at the top of the funnel. But we sell hard about the culture. We're 100% proactively transparent. And by the time we get to the, the offer letter stage, a lot of candidates might have three or four offers. And three of them are probably remote. And then one of them is PAVE and it's in person. We invite them to the office, maybe for a happy hour, maybe for a product jam, whatever it is. And they walk in, they, they immediately feel they that feel magic, it. Boy, that feel spark. It. Yep. And it's a no brainer. And we went on yep. culture every time. So yeah, a lot of investors thought we were crazy. Candidates thought we were crazy. My friends thought we were crazy. Every remote work evangelist, I, I respect them. I get it. I fully support what they're doing. But our thesis has been about in-person and that camaraderie that comes with it. So yeah, that's a little bit about the paid culture. I, I, but I think you're going to hear a lot more of what you just said, because I mean, literally this morning, I was talking to a CEO of a company at the same stage as you just raised the same type of growth round. And he's like, we're in person. The salespeople need to be in person to absorb each other and feel the energy. If you're one year out of school and you're trying to be successful as a salesperson, as an SDR working from home, uh, some people could do it. Sure. But the majority, they need that camaraderie, the energy, the, the learning from other people pitching the same ideas. So um, I, I I agree. I think, um, I mean, there will be the, I think hybrid where, you know, go, yeah, sure. Work from home two days a week if you want, or, you know, I think companies like that will do it, but to have that togetherness to spawn new ideas is just so important. 
so yeah, no, I think, I think we're going to start seeing more and more as time goes on. So, uh, so you rebranded at one point and you secured a single word.com domain. How did you make that happen? Oh, that's one <laughs> crazy story. Actually. Um, there's actually two parts of the story. So first is how did we originally come up with the previous name Trove? And then the second is how did we change it to pave? Um, so part one of the story, how did, how did we come up with Trove? Um, well, this was right after that co-founder breakup that I talked about earlier. I was a little bit sad. You, you can understand, a little bit depressed, perhaps. And I had two really good friends, Barb and Sarah, in, in San Francisco, and they both worked at the time at early stage, uh, you know, branding consultancy agencies. So I uh, sat in their backyard for the afternoon, and they helped run through kind of a, you know an amazing creative brief process. And their suggestion was, "Hey, why don't you get a bunch of friends over, cook them dinner?" give them some wine and, you know, we'll run the creative process and then the ideas will start to flow. So I said, okay, sounds good. And I think I made a mistake, which is that I texted a bunch of friends, but I didn't give them the context for why I wanted them to come over for dinner. I just said, Hey, Hey, I, I need a favor. Can you come over for dinner? So I had like 10 friends come over. I was cooking them salmon, as I recall, and giving them some, I made some guacamole or something an hour into the dinner, we sit down and they're all like, okay, Matt, like, are you okay? Um, right. Ooh, this you is our What's going like, on? Do you need money? Are, are, are you bankrupt? Uh, there's something else. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I just need help with like coming up with a new domain name. Um, and okay. They're like, oh, collective side relief. Okay. 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 So then, you know, we spend three or four hours coming up with a bunch of domains and or uh, brand names rather, and then wake up in the morning and, uh, Trove had been the winner. Uh, I hadn't checked for the availability of domains that night. So in the morning, I'm like, all right, I'm GoDaddy, like Trove, you know, Trove.io, try Trove app dot, you know, dot co dot L-Y, like everything I possibly could. There was nothing good. The best I could get was try Trove.co, which was a shame because it had the tribe prefix, which just kind of looks a little bit uh, like Bush League. And then you have the dot co and uh, some customers, they would email me try Trove.com and I wouldn't respond. I'm like, yeah, we don't own that domain. So needless to say, it wasn't the greatest domain. Perhaps it was a burnt pizza, like we talked about earlier. Um, we got to the time where we had raised that series a, and, um, it, it hadn't been announced yet, but we knew that we had uh, enough capital in the banks, I suppose, to, to go buy a domain. Mm -hmm. So naturally I wanted trove.com. Like I trove is still in my heart. I have a wallet with like the trove logo on it. Like it's <laughs> still like a part of me. So I try to buy trove.com and well, it turns out the person who owns trove.com, I won't mention names, but. Um, is a very, a, a, a person I respect a, a tremendous amount, uh, but perhaps was uh, a, a very good negotiator and, and unwilling at the time to, to part ways with Trove.com. And so I said, okay, well, clearly we're in a negotiation right now. Um, he was here, I was here. We were starting to get a little bit closer, but there was still a gap between what I thought was a reasonable price to pay. Um, <laughs> it was a pretty crazy price at the time. So I said, you know what, what I'm going to do is just like, I'm going to find every single available single word domain name, just so I can get leverage in this negotiation, right? At the time, I didn't even intend to like buy a different domain or rebrand. Um, so I, there's a whole industry that I didn't even know existed until that point in time called domain name brokers. So I text a few brokers. I'm like, hey, can you just send me a list of all the available domains that you know of on the market and the rough prices estimates? And I put together this database of about 500 domain names. I went back to Sarah and Barb, <laughs> my good friends from earlier. Uh, uh -huh. I said, Hey, do any of these domain names look good to you? And I, I'm a horrible brand mine. Like I, I suck at design. I suck at all marketing. Like I'm just really bad. Um, so I'm like, you tell me. And they're like, Matt, these names are all awful. They all suck <laughs> except for one, except for one, which was pave. They're like pave. We like that. It has the word pay in it, you know, pay pave, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it's simple. 
Uh, and it wasn't too expensive. I mean, all these domains are expensive, but requisite with what you have to pay for some domains, paid wasn't too bad. So I think about going back to the guy who owns Trove.com, but then I'm kind of like, you know, I actually really like Pave. I think Pave might be better. And I talked with the team at the time. We had like uh, four employees. They all, you know, naturally have this emotional attachment to Trove. Um, so I just went against everyone. I said, you know what? We're doing Pave.com. It's a better price. <laughs> it sounds better. And uh, the rebrand will suck, but whatever. It's, it's worth it. And so, yeah, we bought Pave.com. And uh, didn't even go back to finish the negotiation with the Trove.com person who I think regrets not budging a little bit more because we were so close to being Trove.com. And then when we announced the round, it was a big day because we announced the round and we rebranded from Trove to Pave. And we announced this benchmarking project kickoff that we sort of talked about in broad strokes earlier, um, all on the same day, all at the same time. And a lot of stuff broke when we did that. Because that, what I didn't realize is that it's not as simple as just changing the, you know, the name on the website from Trove to Pave. There's a lot of email processes and other things, and yet this, that, and the other thing uh, that all got blocked um, on that day, and it was a very stressful day. But that was the story of uh, how we rebranded or originally branded Trove, and then rebranded to Pave. So Sarah Co, if you're out in the world listening to this, thank you for all the help. She's the one that really, really uh, compelled that. I, I just love those stories, especially the, the the purchasing of the domain stories. They're always just fun to listen to. <laughs> like honestly, every time I see it, I'm like, I gotta ask, how, how'd you land the single name? Uh, very cool. Well, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story and obviously all the great lessons learned through their travels of building PAVE and obviously the great work you're doing of you know helping companies figure out a complex mess and then future consideration of helping consumers you know get paid what they should be getting paid. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, it. It's truly just a blast. Like I'm having such a good time. I think it, the unique thing about PAVE is that it's a mission that every single person on earth can relate to. Whether it's your Uber driver, I'm at my Thanksgiving dinner table, or you know, I'm just walking around the city. I can look at every single person I see and know that every single one of them has had some bad, emotional, horrible experience at some point in their life in terms of their relationship with compensation. And to me, that's what fuels me with the most you know, vigor and energy about the future. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.